0: Welcome back to another edition of EdChoice Chats. I'm Jason Bedrick, Director of Policy at EdChoice, and this is another edition of our Policy Series. I'm delighted to be joined today by the President and CEO of EdChoice and my boss, Robert Enlow. Who has been involved in the state of Indiana, where we are located, and which is going to be the topic of our discussion today. Robert, thanks for coming on. Thanks for
1: having me, obviously, and, and obviously not only located here as an organization, but I was born here in the great state of Indiana down in a place called Evansville, which is southern Indiana on the banks of the Ohio River at what we used to call the
0: tri-state area. So it's the nexus between Illinois, Indiana, and Kentucky. Well, there's no better place to start than the beginning, and you've been here since the beginning of the school choice efforts in the state. Why don't you take us all the way back to the beginnings of what was then called the Friedman Foundation and even a little bit before that with the uh, beginnings of the school choice movement in Indiana?
1: So, not quite right at the very beginning, but we're darn close to it at Ed Choice and formerly Friedman Foundation. So when we arrived in 1996, there had been a few efforts beforehand. So. Now Speaker Bosma, Brian Bosma of the House Representatives, had put in a school choice bill prior to the 1996 in the early 90s. And heck, even Pat Bauer, the Democrat Speaker of the House at one point, his father had introduced a voucher bill way back in the day in the 70s. So there had been some early efforts way before the 1996 time, but not too many. Prior to us getting there, though, in 1995, a group of business leaders had gotten together and with two organizations called Class and Commit. And they put together an educational reform package that didn't include choice, but did include a lot of sort of anti-union takedown of the state's largest school districts at that point, Indianapolis Public Schools. And they got rid of collective bargaining. They did a whole bunch of stuff inside the state's largest school district. When we got to town, that had blown up like you wouldn't believe, right? So the business community was trying to direct the public school community and there was a massive fight going on. The first actual effort that we were involved with was something called Kids Can in 1997. At that point, Representative Bob Banning, before he was a House Ed Chair, was enamored, and we had showed him what had happened with Arnie Carlson in Minnesota. Arne Carlson had passed a, an individual tax deduction, refundable tax deduction or tax credit, as well as a tax deduction. And that was something that was intriguing to some of the legislators. And so there was an effort in 1997 that included the Chamber of Commerce and ourselves, and, and at that point, the GEO Foundation, which is uh, run by an old friend of ours named Kevin Teasley, who runs charter schools now, to create Kids Can, sort of personalized tax credits and refundable tax credits. At that point, I think Bayo was getting off the ground, Black Alliance for Educational Options. We'd helped create a chapter here. So that was all happening. At the same time, there were charter school efforts going on. And, you know, to be clear, a shout out has to go out to Senator Teresa Lubbers. We would not have charter schools in the state of Indiana without Senator Teresa Lubbers. In fact, we wouldn't have any real-ed reform, in my opinion, without Senator Lubbers. She was an amazing leader in the Senate for so long, and actually spearheaded getting the, the charter bill passed in 2001. And at that point, it was one of the most innovative charter schools in the country, charter school laws. We were the only place that a big city mayor could charter schools. And so we had a Democrat mayor who wanted to support the idea of creating charter schools with a Republican legislature, and we created a very innovative system of charter school authorizing. And that mixed with some of the choice efforts basically got us to 2001. The Kids Can effort failed for tax credits, but the charter school effort finally succeeded in 2001. And from that point onwards, it was sort of like a back and forth. How can we try and get some kind of tax credit or some kind of voucher? It was a lot of back and forth with different organizations getting involved. At that point, the Indianapolis Chamber was involved, the Indiana Chamber was involved. The Non-Public Education Association was involved. The Catholic Conference was involved. We were building the coalition.
0: So when was the, the first time that a voucher bill was introduced in Indiana?
1: Well, if you believe Pat Bauer, Democrat and Speaker of the House, in the 1970s for his dad, Brian Bosman has said he's introduced the first special needs voucher bill. Voucher bills were always introduced uh, mostly every year. The question is whether they actually had the legs to get anything done. And there really wasn't an effort to get something done successfully until... Governor Daniels came on the scene. So if there was a second shout out, you know, we would not have any kind of education reform in the state of Indiana, nor the kind of model that Indiana has become for the nation without Governor Mitch Daniels, now president of Purdue University. What a visionary and what an amazing leader. So Governor Daniels gets elected and his first term was made up of toll roads and daylight savings time and tax fixing and property tax reform, all the things non-education related. Again, our charter schools are starting to grow, but there's no choice program. And then in 2009, right before he gets reelected, there was a budget session and we had been pushing a scholarship tax credit bill. And we've been pushing it and pushing it and pushing it saying, this has to get done, has to get done. And the budget failed the last second of the session. So, you know, as anyone who follows legislatures knows, You know, sine die is that that point in time when the legislature comes to an absolute end. It usually is at midnight on the last day of the session. Uh, It can be a Sunday or it can be a Monday, depending. And in our state, the Rules Committee will suspend all the rules and then go vote on the final budget, right? In this case, I think at 11.49 or 50 in the evening, I remember being there, that budget went down in the House. The Senate couldn't get its way. And as a result, a special session was going to have to be called. And we knew that at that point, we were in a place where we, we were going to demand and Governor Daniels is going to be part of making sure there was a scholarship tax credit. And so in 2009, we passed a scholarship tax credit. Now, what was very interesting is prior to that, and people don't know this, the property tax reform in Indiana is a huge impetus to all of this reform. So in 2006 and 7, Governor Daniels said we needed to reform property tax in our state. And so the proposal was homeowners would pay we a, a capped at 1% of their assessed value, renters at 2%, and businesses at 3%. And that the education operational budget that's part of property taxes would be taken off of the local property tax and put onto the state. So the state, Governor Daniels, actually raised, I think, a half-cent tax, right? Because he took off all of the operational part of the property tax for education and put it on the state. That actual change, which was huge, right? So now in Indiana, property tax can only be used, unlike most states, only for debt reservicing, transportation, and capital buildings, right? So really separated out the operations from the, the buildings. What that did is that made every single school district open to be transferred to free of charge. So it blew open the doors of you could cross any district and go wherever you want. Prior to that, you had to pay like four grand to go across the district you had to pay the operational cost. Now you didn't have to, right? And so that started to blow the doors open and allowed for more choices. So I think people can't underestimate the impact of property tax reform on the fact of what we have now. So if you look at what's happened, so there was business-led effort in the mid-'90s, worked on a personal tax credit program, get charter schools with a bipartisan coalition, including the Democrat mayor of Indianapolis, major property tax reform. An early buy to the Choice Apple in 2009, and then, then 2010 and 11 happens.
0: So before we get into the voucher program that was enacted after the tax credit scholarship, let's talk a little bit about how the tax credit scholarship works here, who's eligible, and who participates.
1: So in Indiana, the Choice Charitable Trust, which had been a privately funded program had, serving only low-income families. Okay, that's how it had been operating prior to 2009. In 2009, the state passed a law that allows individuals and corporations to claim up to a 50% state tax credit for gifts they voluntarily make to another nonprofit that gives out scholarships. Originally, the Educational Choice Charitable Trust was a nonprofit that already established. So all those kids in that
0: program were automatically
1: qualified for right. the
0: program. And the original one was run by the government, and now there's five that are. Non-profit.
1: Oh no, the original one was uh, no. The original one was a nonprofit started by Pat Rooney, who was on our board. It was a private group. In fact, Pat Rooney's organization was the first privately funded scholarship program in America. So it was a nonprofit, and it was just designated to be the one that would be starting. It was so others could start as well. But All right. It,
0: so the state. Uh, the state just simply said,
1: said, there's a scholarship. It had to be this one, right? Yeah. It didn't say you had to be this one or only one, but it said, this is the one we already know. So we're going to say that's already approved. It's sort of pre approved, as it were. Now we have five in the state that are pre approved nonprofits that are working across the state. The Choice Charitable Trust has changed its name a few times. It's still the largest, and it serves low income families. The great thing about our program here is. It is 200% of free and reduced price lunch, which is now 93000 for a family of four, which is really good because that means we're getting more working families into the program. It's about 9,000 kids in the program now. So basically what we did is there was a privately funded scholarship program that had been operating for some time in 2009, the State passed State Tax Credit Program that grandfathered that organization, that nonprofit, into being an approved nonprofit that gives out scholarships. Five more have been created. There are about nine thousand. So, basically, from '96 to now, so we have a business-run effort that had been focused on anti-union work and getting a sort of workforce issues passed to a personal tax credit program through the Kids Can effort in '97, through the 2001 charter school bill that Senator Lubbers passed with a bipartisan help from Mayor then Democrat Mayor Barb Peterson. Then we get to 2006, 7, where we have property tax reform, which I think is an amazing effort by Governor Daniels that spearheaded everything we did after that, and then we get to 2009.
0: All right. So with the tax credit scholarship, corporations or individuals get a 50% tax credit for any contributions they make to one of those scholarship organizations, and then they fund the low and middle income families attending the school of their choice.
1: Yeah. It's charitable choice. It's another way for individuals to direct their tax dollars away, frankly, from the government and towards families who need it
0: more. And then in 2011, we had another expansion of school choice. Can you tell us about that? So
1: it's 2010 and 29 when this really starts. So we realized that there's going to be a potential if Governor Daniels gets reelected to really try and do something innovative and big. And so through lots of effort and through lots of partnerships, through the election of Superintendent Tony Bennett, right, at Indiana, who was an incredible reformer, an incredible, passionate person who wanted the best for kids and wanted the more reform i 've never seen anyone go up on the state house floor and make a ruckus like Tony Bennett has done before. Um, a package is put together in 2011 that becomes the governor 's education package. That package people don 't realize, I think was seven separate things. One, it was grading schools of A to F. two, it was ending teacher seniority, right and so it was ending tenure, teacher tenure. Three, it was eliminating collective bargaining except for wages and benefits. Four, it was creating the Gov- Governor Daniels early graduation scholarship of $4,000. If you had enough credits to graduate as a sophomore, you could start going to college and get $4,000, right? Immediately. And a massive expansion of the charter school law to include other authorizers. And then the enactment of the Choice Scholarship Program, uh, which is the voucher program. So it was this big, huge package. And the mantra was very simple: it all passes, or none of it passes. Now you got to remember. At the same time, the, the legislators were deciding that right to work, in their mind, they said, was the worst thing in the world. Obviously, that's the collective bargaining, but it was really the voucher things that were mad at. They went. They decided to. The Democrats decided to take a break and go to Illinois for a while. So yes, in this Indi- made
0: national news. I remember. Yes. That.
1: So in Indiana, the the Democrats, being not in a majority, in fact, being in a. Slim, only one away from the supermajority, I think, uh, for the Republicans. The Democrats decided to take a break and go sit in a hotel in, uh, in Illinois. In Illinois, just across the border. This, of course, caused everyone uh, much consternation and much grief. But what it also and led they,
0: they had to go to Illinois because otherwise the sergeant at arms could arrest them that and bring is them correct. back to That's the legislature. Correct. That is correct. So
1: uh, there were lots of conversations about whether that would actually happen or not. In fact, all you needed was one Democrat to get to quorum in the House, right? So. Everyone's looking for that elusive one Democrat to come back. And Again, this isn't not meant to be partisan. This is just the way it was. The mantra was it all passes or none of it passes. And so what ended up passing was this huge package of reforms, including the Choice Scholarship Bill. Now, the Choice Scholarship Bill is, at that point, was the nation's largest and most expansive voucher program. It basically said that any family who earns up to one and a half times of the free and reduced price lunch amount uh, would be eligible to receive a scholarship. And that scholarship amount would be based on what the state would spend on their child in their district of residence. And if you were low income, i.e. qualified for free and reduced price lunch, you got 90% of what the state would spend. And if you were between uh, free and reduced price lunch and one and a half times that, you got 50% of what the state would have spent. So, of course, you had access to no local or no federal funds. And so we knew early on that this was a very expensive bill because we made it statewide we made initially a cap of five thousand, then fifteen thousand, and then no cap. So we knew there was gonna be no cap. What was you very unique about this bill is is that two things. One, it was fully funded. If you had a seat in a private school and you had you were qualified as a child, you could go. And so there was no hesitation. So and it was connected to the funding formula. The second thing we did is the state of Indiana has been requiring private schools to take the state test for a long time. And Most of that was done with private school support back in the 80s because they wanted to play basketball and football. And so the most powerful entity in the state of Indiana is the Indiana High School Athletic Association. And so that's – they were – many private schools that were accredited
0: were taking the state test already. Right. For our listeners' sake, maybe you can explain what it means that they wanted to take the test so that they could play basketball and football. So, look – there's a
1: lot of debate about whether you should ask private schools to take the state mandated test or a nationally norm reference test. Obviously, we believe at EdChoice that it should be nationally norm reference test at the most. Right? Schools should be free to decide what test they think works best for their children. But Hoosier basketball is a big deal. When I was born, there were three people at my birth, and it was my mother, my doctor, and my basketball coach. So the idea of playing basketball in the state of Indiana, which is you know many of us bleed cream and crimson. For Indiana Hoosier basketball, you know, this is a big deal, and private schools wanted to be involved in this non-public schools. And so many of them had decided to become state accredited so that they could participate in high school athletics. And that
0: requires taking the state test. And at
1: that point, it required taking the state test.
0: Now, not every school has to do that
1: right now. It's changing. So, and our state, our scholarship tax credit program does not require the state test. And so some schools only participate in the scholarship tax credit program and not the voucher program. But because of the work we had been doing from 2009 onwards, and even before that, with the creation of a, a group called School Choice Indiana, we had basically gotten to the point where the day the voucher program passed, there were 280 private schools that had already signed up. So we had we had had a like three month window to get everything up and running. We got it up and running. It started with 3,000 kids. It was the fastest growth in the first year of any program at that point, and actually it was the fastest second year and the fastest third year for and so. We've seen very strong growth in this program to now there are almost 36,000 kids in the program in Indiana or about 3.5%.
0: Yeah, so it was about 4,000 in 2012 and then all the way up to about 36,000 in the last year.
1: Yeah, and now we're sort of at a point in Indiana where we've got to do something to expand the student eligibility. Because what happened after 11, it was a huge growth, and then, and then Governor Daniels Lees and Governor Pence, now Vice President Pence, is brought in, in his first act in 13 is to expand the voucher program, one of his first bills. And that voucher program then was expanded to have multiple pathways into the program. If you were a child in a failing school district, you could be automatically eligible for a voucher. If you had special needs, you were eligible for a voucher. If you were a sibling of a voucher receiver, you could be eligible for a voucher. So there were multiple pathways into the program that were expanded under Governor Pence, now Vice President Pence. And so, so basically looking back to, if you have passed this bill in 11, it grows very clearly and then Governor Pence gets in, expands it, and now we're to almost 40,000 kids.
0: Not without hurdles though. Right after it passed, it was the subject of a lawsuit. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Uh, the lawsuits. Um, so my old friend, Clint Bullock, who's now a Supreme Court justice in Arizona, used to say, if you have a school choice program, you have a school choice lawyer, that was for IJ. I used to joke with them, if you have a school choice program, you have a school choice lawsuit. And and that's exactly what happened here. You know, the, the teachers union filed a lawsuit immediately, pretty close to immediately, to enjoin the program. Obviously, that didn't happen. But the state decided to, here's what happened. It was very interesting. They filed a lawsuit. We were allowed to continue collecting names and getting people signed up, right, for the first part of the year. And then the Supreme Court has to really quickly turn around the decision. We have a five-member Supreme Court. And so that case was probably one of the biggest and quickest, fastest decisions in favor of school choice that I've ever seen. I've seen a lot of court actions in 20-plus years. The Indiana Supreme Court decided, and it feels like within seven months, right? Although we had had all our legal ducks in a row, we we had bulletproofed the bill, we had had everything ready to go. It felt like within seven months, the Indiana Supreme Court basically came down on a five to zero ruling saying... This choice bill is absolutely constitutional in the state of Indiana. It did
0: wend its way up there first, had to go through the trial court and all that. So yes, yeah, so that's right. It went through the trial court with Judge... Oh. The lawsuit was filed in July of 2011, and then they got a summary judgment in favor of the program in January. So that, that alone took about six months. The Supreme Court heard oral arguments later that year, but it wasn't until November that it got all the way up to the state Supreme Court, and then they issued in March of 2013, their five to four decision.
1: So the lawsuit, which you're, you're right. So thanks for the refresher on timeline. It gets Things run into each other. The lawsuit was filed in 11, and the summary judgment happened with Judge Keel in the Marion County Superior Court. Judge Keel made a very declarative ruling, which, which I think was interesting. Is our program was allowed to run during this whole case.
0: And that's very important because in some cases, The lawsuit was filed after the enactment of the program, but before the first scholarship or voucher was given out. And then in cases like that, they they often, judges like to stay with the status quo. So in some of those cases, they issued an injunction and said, okay, you cannot start this program until we've assessed the constitutionality. In this case, students were already receiving scholarships, and the judge decided, you know what, we're not going to yank all these low-income kids out of school. We're gonna let them continue going while we figure out the constitutional the constitutionality of the program. Now what was being challenged exactly?
1: What was being challenged was whether aid can flow to private schools that are religious. I mean there was a First Amendment challenge. There was also a state challenge as well. And that I believe was a state uniformity challenge. I'm I'm pretty sure
0: And there's a clause that's similar to a, a Blaine amendment in Indiana's Section Constitution.
1: 6... Articles, article 6, section something, as I recall. I don't know if the article actually, essentially... It, I remember here's the... Hold on. This is yep. actually... Magic. We hung all of our things on this quote, and I remember this very... Because we spent a lot of time on this. The state of Indiana shall establish a set of common schools that are funded by the public. Semicolon and ensure that every child is educated... By, the legislature has child the means to educate anyone for the general diffusion of knowledge for the science and... So it was this semicolon and, and I remember this distinctly, that became the linchpin in some ways of our case. So, yes, we had to establish a a traditional common school system, which we had in Indiana, but the the legislature was well within its rights, because that semicolon and, to establish any other program it wanted to establish, which is what the court relied on. Right.
0: And it was prohibited from directly funding theological schools that are producing pastors and ministers. But that didn't apply to primary education. So I'll give you one quick quote from the unanimous ruling of the state Supreme Court in Meredith v. Pence. It said, first, the voucher program expenditures do not directly benefit religious schools, but rather directly benefit lower-income families with school children by providing an opportunity for such children to attend non-public schools if desired. Second, the prohibition against government expenditures to benefit religious or theological institutions does not apply to institutions and programs providing primary and secondary education.
1: That's a huge ruling if you think about it, right? So basically yes. it's saying any aid going to families from the public coffers, even if it's to religious entities or not violating the Constitution of Indiana.
0: Right, and that it's this, the students who are the beneficiaries, not the, not the schools. Yeah, the way we
1: say it, it's aid to families, it's not aid to schools, right? right. Just and, like and nobody
0: says that uh, a you know, SNAP, you know, food stamps, well, that's for grocery stores. Well, no, yep. they're going to be used at grocery stores, but the beneficiary are the hungry, not the grocery store.
1: Yeah, look, we were very lucky in Indiana to have such a, believe it or not, speedy. It was speedy, right? So from July 11 to, to March 13. In court terms is pretty doggone speedy, as I recall. For those of us who remember the United States Supreme Court effort with Cleveland, Ohio's program, that started in nineteen ninety-seven and didn't get dealt with until two thousand two. So for an eighteen month ruling all the way from the Superior Court to the Supreme Court of Indiana is pretty darn quick. We're really pleased about the ruling. And of course that led to the expansion of the program even further. Because as you know, one of the barriers to a program growing is if someone thinks it's not going to be there next year because a case might get ruled against you. So that expanded our program even further. It's actually the case, interesting, is called Meredith v. Pence. It was originally called Meredith v. Daniels. And it was actually before it was Meredith v. Daniels, it was originally Meredith and Glenda Ritz v. Daniels, right? But Glenda Ritz uh, at that point had won her superintendentship, and so she couldn't be part of
0: the lawsuit anymore. So that the name changed quite a bit on the lawsuit, which I think is quite funny. So now we've got a program that is on firm constitutional ground. It's been growing year after year, what's next for school choice in Indiana? So I think you
1: need to look at what's happened with school choice. So we're going all the way back to 96 to now, right? We've created a system of educational options for the state of Indiana that very few states can mirror. So when we started, there were well over nine, about 91% of the kids, maybe 92% of the kids going to their assigned public school back in the late 90s. And in fact, in 2010, there was about 90% going to their Now, only 83% of the kids go to their assigned school. We have the public-to-public school choice program, which is the largest in the state, by the way. So people going across district lines are 55,000 of them, right? We have about 46,000 charter school students. Now about 37,000 private school choice students, voucher students, and about 55,000 students private paying, right? So we're getting to a state where we have so many good different options. We're creating an environment. For families uh, to be able to choose whatever works for them, and that's exactly what we want, and and that's really important, particularly from the scholarship side. A lot of times, school choice is seen only as an urban fix, and that's not true, and it shouldn't be true, right? A child needs to get in where they fit in, and what's what we did in Indiana, which I think is absolutely what's happening around the country, is this isn't about whether you're poor and live in urban areas, although they are often the worst in terms of how education has benefited them, right? So Milton used to say the truly tragic situation is for those in the urban areas who who have schools that have not worked for generations, right? Something like that. But places like rural Indiana, which is really poor, right? You now have some options happening. Places like suburban Indiana, where you have some families that don't fit in, whether it's because they're bullied or other reasons, they now have options they never had. And so one of the, the things I track most in our Indiana program is that it's only now about 60% are in urban Indiana. The rest are in suburban and rural and towns. That's a huge thing. That means this program is getting around the state and people are using it. And and because it's income based, it, it, whether I like that or not, it certainly means it's affecting those families who have greater need. And that's also why we scaled the voucher amount, right? So we wanted to make sure we gave more money to those who needed more, and but we opened it up for others. I think then what the future means for us now is. We have this wide open system of options, but we need to start getting more children eligible to uh, attend non-public schools, right? So we need to go from 150% of free and reduced price lunch to 200% minimum, right? We need to expand it to equal the tax credit program. Because people forget, public schools traditionally, there's no income basis to that. Billionaires can get free public schools all day long. Billionaires, by the way, can get free charter schools all day long, right? This idea of income limits only seems to work if it's a non-public school which I don't get, right? Everyone else has to pay a non-public school, but no one has to pay if it's a charter school or a public school, right? So there's this interesting duality of this conversation about that. So we need to increase the eligibility, and then we need to increase the amounts, right? So we need to give more money and drive more money into sort of the working poor, because one and a half times free and reduced price lunch for a working family of five is really not that much. I mean, if you think about how life works nowadays, right, and how much... uh, if you're a family of four and you're earning seventy thousand dollars and you have a house and two cars, you're trying to get both of you work, you know, you're not living on on the high hog, right, with that kind of money. And so, you know, we, we want to make sure we're trying to benefit as many kids and families as that need it as we can. So we wanna would be great to add a you know, as I said, we have a ninety percent and a fifty percent voucher amount, it'd be great to add a seventy five percent in the middle of that and expand the
0: eligibility. Right, so it would be great to expand the program, but before we do that, I think politicians are going to want to know, is this working or not? Do we have any evidence that it's working? So
1: a couple of things. Obviously, I just talked about the need to expand it. There's this incredible environment, is ecosystem we've created of options across our state. There are over almost 200 school districts that are going public to public. There are over 300 private schools. There are over 100 charter schools. There's this massive ecosystem. And we want to expand the options for families who, who, who need help to, to go to a non-public school. We also have some amazing things working in our city of Indianapolis with some charter schools and what they call innovation schools, because that's a whole other thing we didn't talk about, uh, innovation schools. All this choice has forced our state's largest school district, the Indianapolis Public School District, to become extremely innovative in trying to solve its problems. And so that's really cool. But the real question is, is it working, right? Are families doing better, Are kids doing better, and is society doing better. Because everyone's got to remember, our, what is our mission statement, right? Our mission statement at EdChoice is, advancing educational choice is a pathway to a successful life in a stronger society. So here's what we know about the Choice Program in particular. And we also know about this at charter schools. Kids in the Choice Program, or at least the voucher program, they do a little bit poorly on tests at the beginning. And then depending on the study, they start to come back by year three and four, right? There's a study at Notre Dame saying that they flatten flattened out. So They basically revert to their peers, right, in public schools and and perform at that level. There's a lot of debate about that. What we do know, however, is that kids in the non-public school choice program are attaining more. We do know that their parents are more involved in their community. We know that they're more satisfied. We know that it's saving state dollars. We know that they're going on to higher ed at a higher rate and they're persisting at a higher rate. There's a ton of positive conversations happening here in our non-public schools. 92% 92% of which are, if we're going to believe school grades, are rated A, B, or C, right? So vast, the vast number of them are rated A, B, or C. So we think the program is doing well for kids. And also what's innovative about our program, again, whether you like school grading or not, if you're a non-public school in our choice program and you get a D or an F for any two years in a row, you can't take new kids the third year. If you get two Fs in a row, you can't take two new kids until you get two Cs in a row. This is real academic accountability, the kind of which our public schools would balk at every single time. If you said to a traditional public school, hey, you know, we think you shouldn't be able to expose your failing school to two new kids. So if you get two D's in a row, you can't take new kids the next year. You have to just take the ones you got. They would scream bloody murder, right? And so the argument here is that we don't want to expose kids to bad education. They got to improve faster. And so uh, that's the goal of our our school system, our non-public school system here. We know it's working uh, fairly well. We believe it's working well for students, particularly over time. And we know it's working for
0: families. My guest today has been Robert Enlow, President and CEO of EdChoice. Robert, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Thank you for tuning in to another edition of EdChoice Chats. Remember, you can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. Follow us on social media at EdChoice and sign up for email on our website at edchoice.org. Thank you. We'll see you next time.